welcome to the podcast. In this podcast series, I'm investigating homelessness and mental health in Winchester. Alex Fitzgerald Barron is a senior partner at St. Clement Surgery Winchester, and he really is uniquely well qualified to talk on both of these things. St. Clement's has the contract for treating homeless people. This means providing support and medical advice. And Alex is also a trustee at the Trinity Night Shelter. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Now, St. Clement's has the contract for providing medical care to Trinity Winchester. During lockdown, the homeless have been rehoused in various forms of accommodation. And I think there were some concerns about how this will be done and what it would mean for their mental health. What have your impressions been as a GP in terms of how this has actually gone? Before the COVID lockdown, we were um, accessing uh, or the, the patients for the Trinity homeless patients were accessing our care four times a week. So Tuesdays and Thursdays, they would be accessing doctor clinics um, and Mondays and Fridays, they'd access nurse clinics on a first come first serve basis. And they would pitch up at Trinity and we would go over there and we would see them. And the clinics would be anything between two, three people and maybe 10 people um, on each occasion. Um, There were, before the lockdown, several, and it's difficult to give you a number, people that were living on the streets, but certainly um, half a dozen plus, uh, possibly more at any one time, Um, sometimes a a dozen or so. Um, As we went into lockdown, we shut down the facility in terms of easy open access. um, And so what we did was we continued to offer phone call um, support from a medical point of view. Um, pay, pay, um, clients, or whatever you want to call call um, these, we call them patients, but um, people call them clients or service users, um, were still going to Trinity uh, and uh, sort of requesting some medical input because they were accustomed to that. They knew they could get access. Their names were taken down and if they had a mobile phone. And, and it is interesting to think that actually a lot of them do have mobile phones, not every single one, but um, a vast majority of them have mobile phones. So that meant we could continue to uh, at least connect with them. Um, it's probably not quite as good as the face-to-face uh, scenarios. Uh, and so consultations on the phone would generally be much quicker, but often it was about requiring more medication or they were worried that they were deteriorating from a mental health point of view. Um, and if there was a physical problem, we would occasionally go over and see somebody or we would get them to come over and see us in the surgery, which is not very far away. Um, and my understanding is that most of those were found some accommodation within a fairly short space of time, uh, which actually was a really good thing. We've been trying to get accommodation for them for years. And then suddenly, magically out of the blue, um, the council and various other um, you know, contingencies uh, found space. It must be hard, though, because presumably you can't be sure that they are actually well. I mean, if they're just giving over the phone conversations, are you worried that by the time lockdown ends and you can have physical consultations, actually there'll be loads of sort of pent up health problems that they'll be experiencing? Um, I think that's a possibility. And just as everybody has kept away from primary care a little bit more than they normally would, this group probably would be keeping away a little bit more again. And while that happens, their health, both physical and mental, can deteriorate. Um, The support staff at Trinity, we have a very good working relationship with them. So when they're worried about someone and they see someone, 
and they probably don't see them quite as much because it's not an open access facility but i think people do drift by and they do they are aware of um a lot of the clients i think if they have concerns they sort of act as advocates or or brokers to say i wonder if you should see the doctor or do you want me to have a chat with the doctor so they will they will sometimes some of those phone calls will be i'm a bit worried about so and so and then we'll try and engineer um some advice or or to meet up um so i i think in our environment we're on it a little bit more than maybe some other environments where that um service doesn't really happen uh, so i think it is a vulnerable group i agree um i think anything serious would come to our attention um they clearly will i think just generally the mental health of everybody's gone quiet for a while and i think it's going to backlash generally and i think in this group it's going to be no exception it, it might backlash even more what's your impression about how homeless people have actually been coping though like mentally in this environment i mean are they experiencing many problems at the moment in terms of mental health uh, i think it's a two-edged sword because i think um there is some protection for them as well. A lot of their mental health is made worse because they're coming into contact with, uh, if we call it peers, and those peers put undue pressure on them for various reasons, whether that's around drug use or uh, manipulation or um, uh, you know control. And that happens a lot in, in that group. Um, and when you're not allowed to go and meet people as much, then you don't get quite as controlled and um, manipulated in the same way. And you have a little bit more uh, peace and quiet. So I think on, on that front, some things get better. Some people get anxious. Uh, the, the other thing is that some people find going out anyway quite traumatic and stressful. And this is an excuse not to. So they sort of go, oh, it's not quite as bad as um, as I thought, because I'm not having to put myself into that situation where I'm feeling very hypervigilant and very anxious so I think but there are others of course that feel quite low depressed and they and they think what's the point of life and now they think well there's no point because I've got nothing I'm, I'm in my one bedroom whatever it is that I'm in um, and I'm not even seeing people that I sort of vaguely relate to so I think it is a two-edged sword and some people will feel a little bit worse for wear but some people will feel quite anxious now that they're coming out of it because of the reasons I've just explained. Are you worried at all about what happens to all of these uh, homeless people for whom accommodation has been provided about sort of what happens to them housing wise and care wise after lockdown um well in in i don't know what's going to happen to this accommodation so i don't know whether it's on a short-term basis and whether they're going to be told that that's the end of their tenure and they have to now leave and you're right it may all go back to where we were um or or it may be because uh, i'm not actually aware of what the um the arrangements have been and whether it's a permanent basis or whether it's a temporary basis if it's temporary we're, we're, we're not going to be any better off in a few months time probably assuming there isn't a second wave i think it'll be quite brave of anybody like the council to um, push people out of uh, accommodation in the next few months because it's the next few months that are going to be quite uncertain and quite wobbly so i so i don't know judy if i'm honest i don't know what um how worried to be um for those situations on the um, Trinity website, it mentions that you feel not enough support is given to uh, underprivileged groups. And you also mention how uh, society and the government perceives the underprivileged. Can you just sort of expand on what exactly you, you mean by this? Um, a lot of the clients or patients that come through Trinity 
as I've just inferred to, have had really, really bad experiences in their past. So in terms of family uh, support or family strength, uh, often it is very chaotic and uh, dysfunctional. Uh, a lot of them come from very abusive backgrounds, whether that's emotionally abusive or physically or sexually abusive backgrounds. Um, and, and so their whole, um, and this is a generalization, I guess, their whole um, development has been influenced massively by trauma. Um, complex we call it complex trauma but it's a series of multiple traumatic experiences and i don't mean trauma as in you know falling off a roof but uh, trauma as in um you know it could be losing somebody or it could be just being um um you know domestic abuse or uh, you know things that have have had an impact emotionally particularly on people if you look at the way we're set up um in terms of our health service physical health is quite well set up so if someone needs a heart um, bypass or, or they have a heart attack, they can be whistled in and sorted out very quickly. If they have significant mental health issues, uh, in terms of a health service, we're very weak on our mental health service. And if you fit into a very specific pigeonhole, like you have schizophrenia, you actually get quite well looked after. Um, if you have suicidal depression, you sort of, there, is a, there is a way of doing that. But if you basically don't function very well in society, there is nothing uh, there for that. And because the services are so um, restricted and the, the resources are so narrow, um, the secondary care services, the specialist services say, we can only see people with A, B, C or D. We're not going to see anybody else. Uh, so schizophrenia might be one of those. Suicidal depression might be another one. Um, and um, bipolar might be another one. But that is about it. And they use medication-based approaches for those groups. And if you're just chaotic, you don't really fit into those groups. Um, and they don't provide a service for those groups. So these groups are sort of left, you know, um, actually not really being able to relate into the system. They, um, they can't really hold down jobs uh, very well. The benefits agency insists that they have to look, look after, you know, get, in, apply for jobs on a regular basis which they sort of don't do so the system doesn't really adapt to them they have to adapt to the system but by their nature they're not very good at adapting to those quite you know specific and defined ways of working so they fall through the net lots and lots and lots um, and they are not assertive enough to sort of keep you know asking for help and the help isn't available so they tend to get neglected and they often neglect themselves which is why they're in the situation that they're in so, so I think you know, as a society, you know, if you walk down the street uh, and in Winchester, you'll see people, not at the moment maybe, but you'll, you'll see people sort of begging. Uh, people will feel if they give them a few pence or, or some money that they've done their bit, but a lot of people won't even see them or, or acknowledge that, that they're there or feel that they've chosen that, that it's somehow a choice that they've decided not to work. You know, why can't they work? They should, they should jolly well work for their money and get a proper job like everyone else. And, and they, they just don't have the skill sets to, to do that. And once you've, you know, you've left school at the age of 14 or whatever a lot of these uh, people have, um, A, they don't have the academic ability and they don't have the ability to, to um, I suppose, connect with people in a way that makes them really functional. And so that's why they fall off the, you know, that's why they can't manage in society as society's been created. It seems like you're describing quite a sort of fragmented system which doesn't really have any sort of which doesn't have really enough focus on rehabilitation really um, oh absolutely so uh, i mean it, I, i'll give you an example i'll give you an example um 
child and adolescent mental health services are dealt with by a trust called the Sussex Foundation Trust. They, they operate out of Sussex, but they, they have lots of um, services all over um, the sort of south of England. Um, the adult mental health service in, uh, in our area is operated by Southern Health Foundation Trust, which, which has a lot in Hampshire, a big, big presence in Hampshire. Um, if you look at the drugs and alcohol service, that's done by the, uh, I think, Oxford uh, Health Foundation Trust. None of these trusts connect in any way at all. So if you are 17 uh, and a half and you have mental health issues and you started using drugs, um, I, would, I would then say to you, well, I, I can't really refer you to the CAM service because they are, they're about to say, you know, when you're 18, they won't want to know you. So it's going to take three months to get you seen. Most people that I refer, will, they'll come back and say, we suggest all these other things before we see you. So you won't get in in the next three to six months. You're then going to be 18, so then you have to go to adult mental health, but I can't refer you there now because they won't take you. Um, I can refer you to the um, drugs and alcohol service, but actually if you're taking drugs because you're feeling crap about life, uh, they're just going to deal with the drugs bit. They're just going to look at, you know, how can you reduce your drug risk taking, but they're not going to look at what's going on in here, which is the reason why you're taking drugs in the first place. So we need to send you back to the mental health team for that, but they won't want to see you while you're taking drugs. You'll need to get off the drugs before they see you. So once you start spinning all this round, it's like a catch 22. Yeah, absolute catch 22. And they just go, you know, F off. You can't help me. And I go, well, I can't really help you. The only thing I can do is just sort of, you know, come back and see me and we'll have a chat from time to time. And I guess that's the only thing that they sort of have. Now, some of them will be in inclusion because they're on methadone, but that service inclusion is the drugs and alcohol service. That service won't give them the sort of trauma-informed care and package of care that they really need to develop and progress out of this. It's taken people 20 years often to get into the situation they're in and to expect them on a sort of six-week, you know, I talk, which might be a sort of, you know, talking therapy to get out of it. It's just not going to work. It, it needs really, really intense uh, rehabilitation in a sort of therapeutic community. We don't have any of those around here. Uh, so in terms of Hampshire, we're not very well dealt with. Other areas do have some of those um contingencies but we don't so it is very fragmented I'm, I'm all i'm really trying to say is i agree with you it's very fragmented and it and it doesn't really serve that particular population very well but but why is it that there's so much variation is it because there's no sort of central coherent approach and sort of different authorities are just taking sort of these disparate approaches to an issue that, that really needs to have overall standards if we're not to have these sort of massive inequalities between areas in terms of how effective this support is I, that's a good question. I think the resources for mental health are so low um, that across the whole nation, nobody offers a really comprehensive service. But I think each area can slightly flex what they do. And depending on the leaders in that area, so depending on who you get, um, who, who try and, you know, so in Hampshire, there'll be some people that will be thinking about this, but they'll they'll have a particular view on it and they'll offer it in a particular way. Um, and then the teams will develop what they're particularly strong at. So we've got a very strong medication-based um, uh, service locally. So in terms of medication, that's very, very well supported. But medication, depending on your philosophy of mental health, is not necessarily the answer for everything. So how can we better design the system then, if that's not too broad a question? Uh, well, the first thing is we need more resourcing into it. So I can't, I can't quote this to you, but I think it's something like 
mental health services commands 10% compared with physical health services. No one's done an analysis at any stage to say, let's have a look at the total need of the health population. Ah, the answer is we need 90% for physical and 10% for mental. Um, if they were to do that, they'd probably find that it's a 50-50 or 40-60 split. In primary care, we see 20% of our consultations are specifically around mental health issues. Um, so, you know, and I th so I think at least, you know, at least 20% probably should be put towards mental health services. And the problem with mental health services is it, you can do very quick, short interventions, which are fine for mild to moderate situations, but if they're entrenched situations, that just doesn't work. So it's the entrenched people that are stuck that don't really get the longer term care and packages of care that they require. Now, how you fix that, I, I'm not sure because you need some strategic leadership that says this is really important. Uh, and if we do that for enough people, we will get some payback because actually people will then be able to get back into work and it will be a good thing for our whole economy. And it will drain, you know, we have fewer people in prisons because if you look at the prison population, I would say three quarters of people in prisons are all the same sort of group of people that are that have you know quite a lot of chaotic lifestyle and behaviour issues. Uh, and then it comes down to education. You know, if you have a really good education system, you, you shouldn't let these people fall through the system. So it, it is complicated, but I think generally it's not well acknowledged. And to give you another example, we've just had a new contract in general practice that has said. Um, we can have some additional help for what we do and the people that they say they want us to use are paramedics, physios, um, social prescribers, uh, health coaches. And we've been saying we need mental health workers. Why can't we have that? And only now, literally two months ago, they said, oh, OK, well, perhaps we'll think about mental health workers. But it was the bottom of the list, not the top of the list. And for us as a city, it was always the top of our priority list to try and get a really good um, mental health input within primary care because I think that's what we need. Mm. You mentioned social prescribing there and I think that's in part sort of a product of this increased emphasis in recent years on BCSEs and providing care to the community. I mean what's the potential of social prescribing? So I think it has a massive potential uh, at the moment, it's quite difficult because a lot of social prescribing is about activities, whether it's going out running groups or pottery classes or, or you know, social activities. But at the moment, it's quite hard because that all has to be remote and that becomes difficult for some things. Um, but even for social prescribing, I think a lot of the patients we're talking about would find it really difficult to go and join a pottery class or an art class. They would just sort of go, oh, I don't think I can do that. So, so for the moderate to severe cases, it's really hard. I think for people that are sort of, you know, um, you know, for you and I, uh, and, and we felt that that might be useful, it'd be a really good thing to go off and do if someone offered us that. If we were having a bit of a, a struggle with something and we just needed a bit of a focus, it'd be lovely to, to, to do that sort of thing. So I think, I think social prescribing will fill a big gap, but it won't fill the whole gap. Mm. I don't know if you're mm. familiar with Ed Miliband's podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful. Are there any reasons to be optimistic um, in this crisis about the future of caring about care for vulnerable people? Uh, well, I think, I think that the COVID will have some positive uh, spins from it. And I think people will recognise that mental health will become an issue because it's talked about it has been talked about recently quite a lot and therefore i'm hoping that you know the government who are now actually starting to say 
let's support the NHS more because that's politically the correct thing to do, they might push forward some um, initiatives uh, to improve the situation. It won't be perfect, but it will hopefully be better um, than maybe it was a year ago. And, and I think the COVID will have helped that rather than hindered it. So I'm sort of optimistic rather than pessimistic that things might move forward a little bit better than they would have done. Mm. Alex, thank you very much for your time. It was really good to speak to you. All right. If you've got any other queries, just click me an email. Thank you for listening to that interview. If you liked it, please do share on social media. And I just want to give some of my impressions about the conversation we had. Now, I'm never sure exactly how helpful my impressions are, but if anything, it's helpful for me personally to extract what I saw as the implications of what each interviewee said. And I was struck by the difficulties that GPs more generally must face in providing assistance, not only for homeless people, but also just for people with mental health issues in general. From my point of view, there must be a great deal of value in having that face-to-face -face interaction and phone calls, Zoom calls, aren't really a great substitute for that. So when Alex described the pent-up issues, uh, I do worry how those, quote, underfunded services, as he described them, will be able to cope with what could theoretically be a large volume of mental health issues after lockdown ends. But at the same time, Alex did seem to imply that as some homeless people find things like going out into public spaces quite traumatic, in the short term, not having to go out and then there being less people around when they do could actually lessen some of the anxieties that they might have been experiencing. The problems obviously re-emerge though when things get back to normal. The second thing I wanted to address is what Alex said about services actually being pretty good when they address specific needs like schizophrenia and suicidal depression. But there's obviously this catch-22 situation if you, quote, don't function very well. Except you obviously don't function very well precisely because you need help in the very first place. And you need a level of effort and determination to navigate the system because if you don't have a high-level specific problem, then agencies will just turn you away because they're only funded to deal with specific issues. So you need to be persistent, but it's this persistence and knowledge of how the system works that those with, quote, chaotic lifestyles lack. Also, this issue-specific approach, as Alex said, is really dangerous for young people as they transition to adults because they lose access to services exclusively for minors. And this means that there isn't really enough of a holistic approach. There's a fragmented approach between different areas. And the whole system is underfunded, as Alex said. Now, I'm not an academic or anything like that. But it seems quite clear that the system needs some quite substantial reforms. Lastly, for me as an interviewer, asking a question at the end about optimism does seem to work quite well. And I don't want to plagiarise uh, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd's podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful, though I think I did mention it. But actually it does tie off the interview very well, and it leaves a nice note, rather than it being uh, a depressing sort of end to the episode of the conversation. It's quite a nice 
thing, and it works very well in terms of the conversation. And it just seems to work well for interviews. We'll definitely use it for future episodes. And finally, thank you very much for listening. Share on social media. And I'll be posting another episode very soon.